Well, as my son Jadwin would say, he'd say, good morning, new life, how you doing, right? He says that at home all the time, I love it. I'm, uh, I'm Brian, I'm one of the pastors here at New Life, and I'm excited to be bringing you a message from the Spirit of God this morning. And uh, we're continuing today with part three of our Unblock It series, and boy, howdy, am I just expectant to hear what God has to say to us this morning. How many of you guys were, you, you loved Pastor Troy's part one of this message, and then last week, Jeff Duvall had part two, and I am just, you know, they say third time's the charm, we'll see if that's true, because it's part three this morning. Are you guys excited? Good. I am too. I am too. Yes. That's what I'm talking about. That's what we're looking for. Now, I'm excited, but, but I'm also a little nervous, all right, because I'm walking a thin line. I'm getting a little bit of a ring, bro. You can turn it down. I have a loud voice, right? You guys can hear me just fine. Um, I'm walking a thin line between grace and truth today. Now, too much grace uh, without truth leads to empty happiness, and too much truth without Grace leads to a legalistic, judgment-centered atmosphere. We don't want either of those things, right? And that's the great thing about Jesus. He was complete grace and truth. It wasn't a 50-50 thing. He was 100-100, full grace, full truth. So, so today, I'm going to be giving you guys the truth from God's Word. And I think Jesus is going to be showering you with the grace that you need while we learn some potentially hard truths this morning, all right? So, because if it was just me talking as a human being, then it would only lead to some unhealthy shame, and that's not good. But when we bring the grace of Jesus into the equation, I'm hoping that we all truly feel some healthy conviction in this room today. Does that sound good to you guys? Sounds good to me, because I'm preaching up here. And believe me, I preached this message to myself before I ever preached it to you. And uh, I'm telling you, this is a hard hitter today. So buckle up. It might get a little personal. <laughs> Not that I'm like looking at every one of you know. I didn't write this message with a single person in mind, but just know like if I look you in the eyes, it's just because I feel awkward standing up here and I need like a personal connection with someone in here. And, and it's not because like I'm calling you out on anything, all right? Or am I? No, I'm just kidding. I'm not calling you out. I'm not calling you out. So today, the, the roadblock, which is, you know, when you see this, that's, you are not supposed to go past it on the road, right? And if you go past it, then you have to pay for the damages you incur. Um, but this is a roadblock meant that you don't pass it. And there's something that we need to address, a roadblock in our life that we have not passed, that we need to pass, that we need to address, and that's complacency, and just so that we're on the same page, um, and hopefully uh, if Trin or Anthony or someone remembers, uh, if you could have someone print the note sheets and just pass them out, just because I'm a fan of writing notes. I don't remember things unless I write things down. I thought I could, you know, when I had first gotten married, I was young and naive and thought I could just remember things, and turns out I couldn't remember things, and my wife was like, you should write things down. I was like, yeah, I should do that eventually. And then I didn't, and we got into fights, and then I started doing that, and then the fights started getting less and less. So, uh, if you know, if there's anything you learn from today, it's just write stuff down, all right? Write stuff down. But just so we're on the same page, the word complacent means pleased with oneself or one's merits, often without awareness of some potential defect. I want to read that again just so we're all on the same page. Complacent means pleased with oneself or one's merits, often without awareness of some potential defect. In other words, you're just happy to be you, and you're comfortable enough to not feel the need to change. That's what complacent means. So that being said, if you've got your Bible, whether it's a physical Bible or a digital Bible, I would please turn it or click it over to 1 Samuel chapter 15, all right? 
1 Samuel 15. It's one of the books in the Old Testament. And while you guys are turning there, let me introduce you to the two main men that we're going to be reading about this morning. The first guy is a guy named Samuel. And considering that this book has his name in it, you probably should have seen that coming. Um, And now first off, Samuel is a miracle baby. Um, his mother Hannah was barren. She couldn't have children, um, and she prayed. And she prayed and she prayed because she really wanted kids. And God heard her prayers, and and He opened up her womb and blessed her with a child named Samuel. And she called him Samuel because in Hebrew, Samuel means heard by God. And I think a lot of you guys understand how she felt because maybe you were in a desperate moment and you cried out to God and, and he heard you. Um, if you know uh, Christian, Chris and Michelle Smith uh, from our church, um, they uh, couldn't have kids uh, on their own. They were told they couldn't have kids and then they got pregnant because Jesus. Um, Jesus uh, just really touched Michelle, and they did uh, just an awesome work, and they're going to have a baby here pretty soon, and we're just so excited about them. It's kind of like that. Samuel was a miracle baby. And so when Samuel was born, the people of Israel, when it, were in a, they were in a state of lawlessness because, uh, believe it or not, at that time, there was no centralized government for Israel at the time. So if, if you can imagine uh, living in America without a government, right? People just kind of did how they pleased. That's kind of scary, isn't it, right? You wouldn't trust very many people. So people did how they pleased, and so God would send down what, what he called judges, uh, not like judges who are like order in the court, not that type of judge, but someone who would come and declare the word of the Lord and say, guys, we got to stop this. We got to get on the right path, and they would turn Israel back on the right path towards God. And Samuel was the last judge. He was the final one for the country of Israel because God charged Samuel with setting up Israel's first centralized government. That's kind of cool, right? That's kind of a big, big deal. And his job, Samuel's job, was to anoint the very first king of the nation of Israel, the very first one. And that very first king who Samuel anointed was named Saul. And Saul so happened, he, he happens to be our second major character in the passage we're about to read. So at the beginning of Saul's reign over Israel, remember he was the first king, he was a great, great, great military leader. He fought and he won many wars for Israel. Um, you know, Saul had the, from the beginning of his reign, Saul had the perfect opportunity to be the benchmark by which all future kings could be measured, right? He was the first one. You want to set the bar high. Now, he had one job, all right? Do you ever know someone that when you think about them in your head, you say, man, you had one job, right? Have you ever said that about someone? You know, all Saul had to do was seek God with his whole heart, obey his commands, and align his will with that of God's, right? That's not too much to be expected from the the king of God's country, right? To listen to God and obey God. But as we'll see in this passage here, he missed that opportunity. Now, he had a lot of mistakes before this passage here, but this was kind of the final nail in the coffin for uh, Saul as king. So, if you guys are at the book of 1 Samuel chapter 15, we are going to read verses 1 through 9. My Bible is the NIV, so if you have the NIV, most likely it's going to be pretty similar. If you have a different version, just know you might have some different words. Just try to follow along as best you can. Verses 1 through 9 says this. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. 
I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, Go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But, people the, uh, but Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Okay. From our perspective, when you read this, it sounds like they did a pretty good job, right? They beat the Amalekites. They, they did I, mostly what they were supposed to do. But, but Saul messed up here, everybody. It doesn't seem completely obvious, but he really messed up. Because God gave him clear instructions on what to do in verse 3. If we look at verse 3 again, God, uh, God said this. He says, now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. That was clear instructions, right? Can't get any more clear than that. But then we skip ahead to verse 9, and this is what Saul decided was best to do. It says, but Saul and the army spared Agag. And the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good, these they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Now listen, we can all sit here and talk about a man who lived thousands of years in the past and clearly see that he didn't follow God's instructions completely, right? And we can understand why God decided to then reject him as the king of Israel, right? Because if you're God and you have the king of Israel who is the king of God's country. You kind of want someone who is going to listen to you. Amen. Does that make sense? So can I get a little real here today though, New Life? We're all Saul. Every single person in this room. Each of us gets so complacent with ourselves that since we mostly did the one big thing that God asked us to do, we're okay being complacent with the other details that God called us to obey. Just like it said in verse 9 up there, everything that Saul and his army decided was good, they were unwilling to destroy because they didn't think it was that big of a deal. Now, from what I've seen in some Christians that I know and other proclaimed random Christians online, when, when I see people commenting back and forth on random posts on Facebook, it's, it's very easy for us to be against the big sins that are culturally relevant right now. But there are other sins that go untalked about because they've become culturally acceptable in Christian circles. Amen. Amen. So, so someone can post and argue on Facebook about how homosexuality is a sin and how abortion is a sin and about how sex trafficking is a sin, which I want to make very clear. They are sins. Amen. Amen. 
but we argue about them on Facebook, and then we turn around and we gossip about someone to another person that shares similar annoyances with that other person. And since gossip is more of a culturally acceptable sin, we're totally complacent with ourselves and find to be actively against one sin while we blatantly commit another. Now, someone else might get upset about some public official being dishonest and, and blast them or the other side of their political beliefs for that sin. But then they turn around and, and they tell their wife or their boss a white lie so that they don't upset them with something they did wrong. And since that white lie has just a smidge of truth to it, we feel complacent with ourselves and chalk it up to not that big of a deal, even though it's still a sin. Please don't shoot the messenger. I am only communicating what's written in the Bible, right? This isn't just Brian's opinion. This is from the Word of God. And if you're a Christian that believes what the, that what the Bible says is infallible and completely true, then I think it's a good idea that we all listen to what it says, even if it hurts. Are we all in agreement? All right? So, so back to the point. Why are we able to call people out on their sins but feel completely complacent with our own This is an important question I want us to get this morning, so I'm going to say it again. Why are we able to call other people out on their sins, but feel completely complacent with our own? Now, there are nearly an unlimited amount of reasons why that happens. But I want to focus today on what I believe are three common lies that we believe that help us to be complacent with our sins. If you have note sheets, I really would love you to write these ones down. The first lie I think we believe that helps us be complacent is that I'm a fairly good person. I'm a fairly good person. I think if there's one thing that we like to be in our current culture, it's comfortable, right? Remember when you used to go to the bowling alley and had to sit on, on these uncomfortable, hard plastic chairs? Anyone remember that day and age when you had to go there? You didn't even think about it then, right? And then all of a sudden, this is America, right? We want to be comfortable everywhere we go. And so now apparently that's, that's no longer good enough for the one to two hours that you might be sitting there, right? Which is really accounts for like two minutes of standing time. Um, but now we have bowling alleys like this popping up everywhere. You know, cool lighting, comfortable couches, a light up table, whoever needs that, right? Multiple big screens so that you can watch the news and complain about it to people out in public instead of in your underwear on your couch. I'm just being real, all right? Just being real. But we like being comfortable. You know, what, what about that time when humans like to go out and be reminded of what it was like to live in a time before houses, right? And they voluntarily slept on the hard ground in a thin-walled tent, praying that a bear wouldn't just come by and breathe too hard and tear down their whole living situation, Right? Yet now, camping means buying or renting a huge RV and traveling to a place with water, sewer, and power hookups, and now that's considered camping, right? Listen, this is coming from a guy who was born and raised in Montana. I know what tent tent camping is like. I did it my whole life. I'm never going back. RV camping all the way, baby, because I like being comfortable. We all like being comfortable. We don't like being uncomfortable, and, and we... And we believe that we're fairly good people. And when it comes time to deal with a sin, we just chalk it up to no biggie and we never deal with it. We feel like we're good because we never deal with our bad. 
And the Bible says, uh, take me a minute to get there, but it says this in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. It says this, As it is written, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It doesn't matter what we feel. It doesn't matter what we think. The Bible is clear to say that not one person does good. Since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, sin has been our default. And I think we need to come to terms with that truth in order to unblock the complacency that is in our hearts that keeps us from moving forward. You know, you might say, doesn't it count for anything that we're mostly well-behaved during this lifetime? You know, as long as we feel like the, the good outweighs the bad, then it's very easy to remain stationary and to not change a meaningful thing about us. We've become perfectly okay with living a lukewarm, middle-of-the-road, morals-dependent-on-circumstance group of believers. Again, the Bible has a truth to speak to this in uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. It says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Guys, that's God speaking, all right? That's God speaking. The more I read the Bible, the more I begin to understand that God is not okay with us just remaining okay. Now, he accepts us where we are, but he doesn't want us to stay there. He wants us to continually grow to be more like him. And that's what we call sanctification. And sanctification is not just a one and done type of change. This is a continual change and growth over the period of a lifetime. Can I let you in on a little secret? You will never arrive until you make it to heaven. So one lie we believe that we need to unblock is that we're fairly good people. But I think there's another lie that is along the same lines that, that I have honestly heard. Even, I preached this two weeks ago in South Stockton. I read no less than three times online or in a Bible reading plan this statement that's a lie. Because we believe it as Christians. You guys ready for it? The lie is this. God doesn't expect perfection. Now, just by a show of hands, how many of you guys have heard that kind of statement before? You know, God doesn't, he doesn't expect you to be perfect, right? I've heard that so many times. Not from this stage, thankfully, but other stages that I've been listening to messages. I've heard this so many times. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm in no way saying that God is unwilling to extend us grace because we're not perfect. That's what's so amazing about grace, right? It's given to us when we truly don't deserve it. But what I am saying is that we like to take a lot of pressure off of ourselves by saying that God doesn't expect perfection from us. And as long as we don't think he expects perfection, then we're justified in not pursuing perfection. You guys see how that works? So we were created in the image of God, and part of life's journey is an ongoing struggle to become more and more like our Creator. And I believe Jesus was and still is perfect. And 
perfect obedience should be our end goal. Now, if you're still not convinced, then let's just read the Bible, right? Even Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 48, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I've looked at this statement before. I've been trying to find like a workaround, a little loophole or something like that. Now, Jesus is pretty direct and clear, right? These are Jesus' words, not just some dude in the Bible. This is like the Son of God saying this. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. God's message isn't to be a little better than those who don't believe in him. God's goal for you is to be perfect, just like he's perfect. Now, why don't we like this? Because if I'm being honest, I don't even like that statement, right? Because it feels unattainable, right? Doesn't perfection feel unattainable? And when something feels unattainable, it, it makes us uncomfortable. And what do we do when we start to feel uncomfortable? Instead of confronting what we need to confront, we become pl- complacent with where we're at with our walk with God. Amen. You guys see how, the, see, see how these lies start to build off of each other? If we see ourselves as fairly good people that God doesn't expect to be perfect, then we have placed ourselves in the perfect storm of complacency. We think too highly of ourselves, which was warned about in the book of Romans. Uh, Romans uh, uh, chapter 12, verse 3, says this, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So this lie of not expecting perfection, it, it bleeds into so many areas of our lives. It's, it's what causes new and veteran Christ followers to be okay with disobeying God when it comes to tithing. Ooh, the T word. Oh, he brought it up, the T word. Yep, some people's ears are shutting off right now. Please just listen to God, please. Since apparently God doesn't expect us to be perfect, we start spouting out excuses like, well, at least I'm giving something. Or, I just can't afford to give right now. I don't have the money to. Now, the Bible says in an abundance of places to give the first tenth, the first tenth of what you make back to God. Then he promises to take care of you with the rest of the nine tenths. See, our our non-giving or our low giving isn't because of a lack of resources, It's because of a lack of obedience. We become complacent with where we're at in our giving, and so we shrug it off as no big deal. Now, I'm not talking about giving this morning because the church is after your money. I'm not talking about giving because it makes me feel good up here. It's extremely uncomfortable for me to stand up here and tell you that as a Christian, you just might be deliberately disobeying God. If any of you guys grew up with the original Lion King, you know that that line, you deliberately disobeyed me, just makes you shrink, right? Oh my goodness. Mufasa. That wasn't even in the message there. That was just, that's free right there, everybody. That is free. But listen, my, my God-given job and mission on this earth is to preach the truth about God's word. And it's our given, God-given job and mission on this earth to be obedient to the word of God. Now, as New Life Church, are we ready to start taking responsibility of the places that we have slacked off? Are we ready to stop blaming something other than ourselves? You see, when we start to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, we begin to shift the blame off of ourselves. And that's the third lie. The lie of, it's not my fault. 
Now, if I had a dollar for every time I heard this when I was growing up, I would be a self-made billionaire because I was the expert blame shifter when I was young. And I used that sentence way too many times, right? I was the youngest, and so I got away with it. But uh, mom and dad, if you're listening, it's still not my fault. Um, but, you know, I, I deal with this with my son all the time. You know, I hear a loud crash in the kitchen, and I run in to find a shattered bowl of cinnamon Cheerios on the floor. And like a regular old detective, right, I, uh, I ask my son, what happened? And I get back the response, it broke. <laughs> ah, got it. Yes, the bowl just broke. Nothing, nothing was happening beforehand, right? It was just a random coincidence that the floor happened to be where the bowl was when it broke. And so, so I take it to the next level. You know, who broke it? And I'm no idiot, everyone, okay? Trin is at work. I was going to the bathroom. Brinley can't even crawl yet. I know exactly what went down, and I know exactly who the culprit is, right? So he then proceeds to say, um, hmm, which if you've been around my son, he says that all the time when he's thinking about something. So for the next 10 seconds, he does that until he says, sissy broke it. Somehow, I don't trust this kid's word, right? You know, and if we just up the level a little bit, my kid is basically what we all are as adults, right? Did you show up to work a few minutes late? Oh, I hit a train. Yeah, we've all used that excuse before when we know darn well there was not a train on the path from our house to work. We just didn't put enough room in our morning routine and we got out the door too late, right? It really is our fault, but we shift the blame to something else. You know, we actually do this so much in our culture that we begin judging people for doing the exact same things that we do because we've become experts at blame dodging. Romans chapter 2 verse 1 says this, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Amen. Dang, Paul. Why you got to be so clear and to the point, right? Why you got to call me out? It's so much easier to shift the blame and to judge another person than to own the sin and do the difficult work of changing. Now, one of the reasons that God rejected Saul as king of Israel, because he was a blame shifter, guys. He was a blame shifter. Let's continue the story where we left off, all right? Back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're going to read verses 10 through 15. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Can you just hear how he just doesn't even understand what's going down right now? Not only did Saul build a monument in honor of himself, right? That's just insane. Showing that he really did think... He was a fairly good person, right? But in verse 15, you know, it says, says this in verse 15. Let's see. It, oh, it was, it was already up there. Sorry, I just 
<laughs> I really uh, botched it there, right? Um, in fact, go to verse 15. It says, Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to the sacrifice of the Lord, right? He is shifting the blame. Saul was an expert in communicating that wasn't my fault, right? So let's keep going. First Samuel 15, let's read 16 through 21. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Can you just see how he just really doesn't understand what's going on? Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? This is where he starts sounding like my son. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. You know, but I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission. I completely destroyed. The soldiers took the sheep. You guys see what he's doing here? Now, we can shake our heads at Saul all day long, but can you see how we can be just like Saul? You know, he changes what happened just a degree, making it a white lie, and he shifts the blame to his own soldiers. Who is in charge of those soldiers? He is. The buck stops with him. He is the responsible party. Listen, the buck stops with you. We each have to start taking responsibility for our own sin and begin unblocking the complacency that is eating at our souls like an infestation. We have to stop shifting the blame. Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 4, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when at the same time there is a plank in your eye? Can you honestly look at Jesus in the eye right now and tell him that you have the plank out of your eye and can see clearly enough to judge the person that you're sitting next to? Now, I pray to God that this is making you uncomfortable because it's making me uncomfortable. And when we become uncomfortable, we want to do something to change our current situation. When we're uncomfortable with sin being pointed out in our life, we either turn to God and repent and heal the relationship or we run away and deny the truth of our situation. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Now, my hope is that today the Word of God would cut deep into your soul. And it sounds weird, but I truly hope that this would create a sorrow of your sin that brings true repentance and salvation from the deserved penalty for that sin. Now, this isn't a woe is me sorrow. This is an oh my God, I am so sorry I have disobeyed you. And unfortunately, that's not the type of sorrow that Saul experienced. 
If you look at back at First First Samuel chapter fifteen, at verse twenty-two, says, "But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams." See, Saul thought he knew what was best, right? He saved the best of the animals to sacrifice to God, which sounds like a good thing, but it wasn't what God asked for because he, he thought God would appreciate him taking the best animals and sacrificing them for him. But that's not what God asked for. What God asked for is the key to unblock it in your life, and that's obedience. Now, I... I talk to a lot of people here at New Life, and one of the biggest needs I, I see in families at this church is a need for peace. Gosh, if I could just have a little peace in my life, I think I could make it. Some of you guys are like nodding your head on the inside of, man, if I could just have some peace. The key to peace is obedience. When we're obedient to Jesus and when we're inside of his will for our lives, peace comes naturally. Philippians 4.9 says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Do you want peace? Put what you've learned today into practice. Do you want peace? Put what you've received into practice. And ask it again, just like Jesus asked uh, Peter three times if he loved me and he got offended. Do you want peace? Put what you've seen into practice. There is no shortcut to peace in your life. The only way to find peace is to practice obedience. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than complacency. Obedience is better than gossip. Obedience is better than pornography. Obedience is better than lying. Obedience is better than hoarding. Obedience is better than being a lazy spouse at home. Obedience is better than being a checked out parent. Obedience is better than just being okay with where you are right now. So I wanna take a minute to give us all time to respond to God in this moment. You know, before we do anything else, the first step is to repent of the sin in our life. You know, I've prayed throughout this entire week that God would speak to you during this message. And I believe that he has given you multiple things that you need to work on. And right now in this moment, you can start working on it by admitting to yourself and to God that you have sinned against him. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. You have sinned against God. Then, after we've repented, it's time to ask for forgiveness from God. You know, our sin is no small thing and we cannot continue to push it to the side anymore. We need to ask God to do what only God can do and that's forgive us for how we have wronged him. So after you repent and ask for for forgiveness, then you can allow the grace of Jesus to flow over you and to make you into a new person. So those are the three steps. Repent, ask for forgiveness, receive the grace of Jesus. Repent, ask for forgiveness, receive the grace of Jesus. And this isn't just a process for this morning. This is a process to live your entire life by. Repent, 
ask for forgiveness, receive the grace of Jesus. That grace, man, it's able to make you into a completely new person. Someone who isn't held back by the weight of their sin, but someone who is walking in the freedom that only Jesus has the power to provide. So this morning as as the worship team sings, this is the altar, there's nothing special about this place, but I believe this is gonna be hard. We like being comfortable. You know what's uncomfortable? Admitting to this room by standing up and coming to the front that you might just have some sin that you need to declare to God. But you know what? There's no judgment coming from another person in this room because guess what? They got to do the same thing. We're all in this together. So this is the altar. This is where I would like you to come. And I'd like you to, you can stand, you can kneel, you can lay down, do what you need to do. But you need to come to God. You you need to do the three steps. You need to repent. You need to ask for forgiveness. And then you got to receive the grace of Jesus. So as the, as the worship team sings this song, as you feel led, don't let someone else determine how deep you're going to go this morning. Don't be like, if someone else goes up to the altar first, then I'll go up, because that's a little more comfortable, right? Do you need to come up? That's what you got to ask yourself the question. Do you want peace? Obedience causes peace. So as they play and as they sing, let's come up and repent, ask for forgiveness, and receive the grace of Jesus. I think we would be missing out on a great opportunity if I didn't extend this invitation to you this morning. You might be wondering what the blood of Jesus even means. The blood of Jesus is this. Jesus was the Son of God, living in a perfect heaven, living a perfect life, and for some reason, because He loves you so stinking much, He decided to come down to this imperfect world knowing that he was going to experience shame and ridicule, knowing that he was going to experience excruciating pain, and that he would eventually be killed on a cross for your sin, to pay the penalty for your sin that nothing else could. You know, like those good animals that that, uh, Saul brought back to sacrifice to God, they sacrificed animals for sin back then. We don't do that anymore because of the blood of Jesus. Because he paid for our eternal salvation with his blood on the cross and this morning I don't know if you've never decided to give your life over to Jesus and say Jesus you're my Lord I'm going to follow you with everything I have I'm done I am sick and tired of living this life of sin I want to be like you or maybe you followed him for a bit and you found yourself off course right you found yourself a degree off because if you keep choosing a degree off and a degree off eventually you're going to find yourself miles away from where God is this morning is the morning to you might just need to give your life back over to Jesus and say God I'm going to go on the right path no matter how much it hurts no matter how narrow it is and how hard it is to stay on so this morning I just want to give you the opportunity let's just I know I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable for the wrong reasons and so let's just close our eyes bow our heads because this is an extremely personal decision to enter into the family of God. So if that's you this morning, if you haven't believed in Jesus before, or you need to renew your passion for Jesus and want to declare this morning that you're going to follow him again, if you would just raise your hand right now, not even going to count to three, do you just raise it right now and say, God, I give my life to you. I renew my life in your hands. I trust you in your way for my life. I'm sick and tired of doing it my own way. I want to follow you. 
God, we thank you for every hand that was raised in this room. We thank you for every soul that is going to be birthed into the heavenly family this morning. God, we rejoice with the angels for everything that has happened this morning. God, we just thank you so much for the death of our sins this morning. We thank you for a renewed spirit of obedience in this church. God, we just say, would you come into our lives and would you unblock it, God? Would you unblock the lies that hold us back from you? God, we declare that we love you this morning and we trust you enough to be obedient that you have us, God. God, not just in our finances, but in everything. We give you the first and we trust you with the rest. God, we thank you. I pray that you would be with these new lifers this week as they go out, as they have these ice cream conversations, God, things that would make all of us feel uncomfortable. We do it for you, God. We give away our life of comfort for the life you have for us. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Everyone said, amen. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he lift his countenance upon you. May he give you rest. And may he give you peace. God bless you, New Life. You guys are dismissed this morning.